Welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by my good friend Flack Taylor for another conversation in our Europe Cinema series. We will be talking today about one of the big successes of 2020, Andrei Konchalovsky's Dear Comrades, a movie about Soviet communism, about Russia in the 60s, about a massacre that was hushed up by the KGB and the Communist Party, and what it says about Russia's past and future, about the time before and the time after communism. This massacre in the Ukrainian smallest thriving industrial city of Novocherkask happened in the summer of 1962, and it was very successfully hushed up by the authorities, one monstrous act after another, and it was only revealed in the 90s, in 92, after the fall of the USSR, when national memory could be restored, some kind of justice could be done to the victims, primarily in the form of a memorial. The film of Konchalovsky also has this character. It memorializes these people and, of course, their struggle against communism and the dignity of people who want to live a human life rather than be involved in political terror and a submission to ideology. The movie is all about the conflict between what's public and what's private, between ideology on the one hand and on the other hand nature and somehow the holy. Mentions of God and the sacred are involved in an unusual but incredibly powerful way. And so Konchalovsky is somehow looking to show the good and the bad of Russia and how people might live with what they've been through. And that is, of course, a very important lesson. How could a country come back or at least deal with a past that is so full of terror and kind of self-inflicted misery? Flag, you brought this movie to my attention. I'm an admirer of Konchalovsky and indeed the entire directing family, but I had not seen this before you mentioned it to me. So thanks a lot, and I'm glad you're joining me here again. So please say hello to our audience and tell me how did you run into Dear Comrades? Hello, Titus. It's good to be back. Uh, I was just thinking we've done episodes on so many of these movies about totalitarianism or communism and Nazism. It struck me that 20 years ago, I think it was true that one could say there were not very many great movies about communism. But I'm not sure one can say that anymore. If you add this to the list and then just thinking about all the movies that we've discussed on your podcast, I think that problem has been addressed. Maybe it was just a matter of getting some distance from 1989 and 1981, but it strikes me that Konchalovsky's movie Dear Comrades can add be added to um, works by Vida and many others, and now we're rich with great and interesting movies about this phenomenon of communism, so I'm happy to be back to discuss it. I think I saw a review of this in the New Yorker or the New York Times, and it made me think it seemed like a competently made and an interesting movie, and uh, you know, I was attracted to by the filmmaker Konchalovsky taking up you know something that really happened, this protest revolt at this industrial plant in Novocherkask in June uh, 1962 and just sort of wondered what an artist would do with a relatively unknown historical event and how a director could make uh, an interesting drama about this. Yeah, so I'm happy to be back and eager to discuss it. Yeah, Konchalovsky has been doing a number of movies in the last 20 or so years on the past and the present of Russia. So there's both communist and post-communist Russia in his stories. His previous movie was a success. It's called Rai, Paradise. It's about World War II and it concerns both the Nazis and the communists. It's a very different sort of movie. It's fictional, among other things. Not a true story like Dear Comrades. It is in a way a prequel. It deals with the 40s, not the 60s. World War II rather than the Khrushchev Cold War era. And Konchalovsky himself has been very successful with all these movies in Venice. Uh, Dear Comrades won the special jury prize and he was nominated himself for uh, Best Director. The previous movie was also a winner, the one before that as well. 
This is primarily where he is famous now, in Venice. 40 years ago, in the 70s and the 80s, he was incredibly successful. Four of his movies, at least, were nominated at the Cannes Festival, the biggest art festival in the world, so he's not at all a stranger to these things. In the interim, from the 80s to the 2000s, he went to Hollywood, which is very rare for a Russian director, of course. He's a strange character. As I was telling you, he directed the buddy cop action comedy Tango and Cash, starring uh, Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell. So, not maybe not not as likely to be discussed on on your podcast, Tango and Cash. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's a really fun movie, but I'm not sure there's uh, much to say about it. You know, he won a couple of Emmys and nominations in America for TV movies, a fairly well-received adaptation of The Lion in Winter, which was a very famous play and movie in the 60s. The the 60s version is Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn and Anthony Hopkins and one of those James Bond guys, Timothy Dalton. And I may be missing somebody in that cast. And uh, his version stars Glenn Close and Patrick Stewart, you know, from Star Trek, (laughs) if we may say he had quite a cast. The other thing he did was also a sort of 50s, 60s retread, an Odyssey TV movie, Homer's Odyssey. So I assume that he has a certain love of Hollywood and of American cinema and of the mid-century where he grew up. He is a very old man. Konchalovsky was born in 43, so he's near 80, and it also means that he knows everything he's talking about from personal experience growing up in the USSR. Now, so far as his career goes, he started out writing for Tarkovsky, the greatest of the Russian directors, and so he knew the the masters of the mid-century, and he is the slightly older brother of Nikita Mikhalkov, who is another famous Russian director who's also had, in his late age, a grand 20 years or so. As you were saying, after the 90s, communism has finally been treated by movies in Europe. We've talked about German movies, Polish movies, now our first Russian movie. Konchalovsky is one of the people who started this as early as 1991. His movie The Inner Circle, which was, again, a Euro-American production with a cast and the Golden Bear nomination in the Berlin Festival, the other big festival in Europe, that was about Stalin. And it was a real story, that of the man who projected movies for Stalin. As so many of the movies we talk about, it's about the relationship between art and tyranny. So this has been a long, long concern of Konchalovsky's. That's a movie I recommend to everyone, The Inner Circle. It's wonderful. And as I said, it's also, like Dear Comrades, based on a true story. So much for Konchalovsky. Please flag, since you introduced me to this movie, take us through the plot. Sure. So as I said, it takes up this historical event, a revolt at a, an industrial plant in Novotrkosk in June 1962. So the movie time frame is three days in June, those first three days. And the movie is told from the perspective of a city party official, uh, Ludmila or Liuda. We see things through her eyes. We experience the revolt through her eyes. She's a believer in the communist project, a defender of the communist project. She's militantly attached to the ideals of communism. And we see her interacting with other party officials, one of whom she's having an affair with named Loginov. Once the revolt starts, we see her meet a KGB official whom we think is named Victor. Turns out to be an important person in her life. And, you know, we see her attitude towards communism change over the course of these three days. Her daughter, who's 18 years old, gets caught up in the protest. We know that she was at the protest and Liuda loses track of her. Basically, the action of the movie is her interest in finding and and trying to figure out a way to find her daughter with the help of this KGB official, even though the city has been put on lockdown and no one's allowed to leave and no one's allowed to speak about, you know, what happened. The revolt turns violent and the KGB suppresses the revolt with violence. And so, you know, her thinking about the meaning of this event in relationship to her ideology and then what it means for her family and her daughter, that's really the kind of drama of the film. We kind of see her undergo these strains. I watched the movie as I was teaching. Uh, I'm teaching a course this semester on on Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate, which is a gigantic novel published not in Russia until 1988, I think, but I think he wrote it in around 1962. So right around the time of this revolt, actually, that's an interesting coincidence. But it was not allowed to be published in the Soviet Union for the reason that it makes an explicit comparison and not in a flattering way, obviously, between Nazism and communism. And one of the 
things that Grossman, I think, tries to get his readers to appreciate and that I've been trying to emphasize with the students is that totalitarianism is a means of ideology. It's the result of ideology. Ideology is not just one feature of a totalitarian regime, as is you know often asserted in kind of mainstream political science literature. People often will call a totalitarian regime an ideocracy or a logocracy. This is true of Milos and Solzhenitsyn and others. So when I watched the movie, it struck me as this film gives you a really wonderful illustration of that truth, because the first thing that happens after this protest takes place, and this is explicitly said by some of the bigwig party leaders, McCoyan and Kozlov visit Novocherkask from Moscow, and the first thing they say has to be done is to control the spread of information lock down the city, get people to sign agreements not to speak about what is happening. I think this movie really illustrates in a quite wonderful way what that looked like and felt like to people who are experiencing the revolt. On June 3rd, you know, shortly after the revolt is over, there is already a stage that has been erected in the town square on the very spot where some people were shot and there's dancing. And so the crazy fiction that's being perpetrated, right, is just right front and center. And it must have been, I, I suppose that by this point, people were used to it who had lived in the Soviet Union, but it still strikes viewers as shocking. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful movie illustrating these aspects of communism and, you know, making us see these events again through the eyes of someone who's a believer in the communist cause, but perhaps who's never had to face certain ugly truths about her ideology in such a direct and dramatic way. That is very well put. Konchalovsky offers us a protagonist that is fascinating and also manages to bridge our situation and the situation described. Much, of course, has changed in the world and in Russia since the days of Khrushchev. But our protagonist, Lyudmila, Lyuda, is a very strong woman. And she has toughness that comes both from her nature and from terrible experience. She is an incredible woman. If communism could somehow create a society where everybody is like this woman, it could work. She is the ideal communist. She believes in communism. She believes in Stalin. And she is smart. She has confidence and a willingness to work and push herself to the edge. But of course, most people are not that way. We see her family, we see other people, and she has to somehow learn that these are also real people and she has to deal with them. She can't deal with them by telling them to shut up and repeat the party propaganda. The party propaganda is her wishful thinking. Why can't everyone be like me? And then communism will finally work. She has to wake up to reality in these days. As you say, it's wonderful. The movie takes three days. It's incredibly concentrated, tense. This is a two-hour movie that has incredible pacing. And although you have moments to recollect yourself, to wonder, if your jaw drops at some of the things you see, you know the communists are going to do what communists do and it's going to be terribly evil, but it's still surprising. It's a violation of innocence, I guess, that's why. And at the same time, you see that somehow with this woman, we have a kind of hope. Her fanaticism will turn away from communism to save her own daughter. And that transformation in her gives us hope. And nevertheless, it means she gets herself in more and more trouble. The more she wants to be a mother rather than a creature of ideology, the greater the danger she gets herself in. And that is a fascinating story. And of course, in our own situation now, wherever you look, a woman wanting to be a mother is nothing shy of a revolutionary act. It's anti-ideological. It seems almost anti-social to be human. So she is both a very timely creature and also a paradox. She is what ideology would want a woman to be. Strong, leads in a public way, very bossy, self-assertive, a strong independent woman, as we say. But also she is obviously a slave to ideology and is trying to liberate herself. Yeah, we can put the drama of the film in a much more compact way than I did initially. So right after the initial protest takes place, the violence has not yet occurred on the part of the KGB. There's the meeting where these bigwigs from Moscow come, and it includes lots of local party officials, local KGB, and they're talking about what's to be done. And this I've made reference to this scene before when they say the first thing we have to do is to control the information. Right at that point in the film, Liuta stands up and makes a very brief statement to the effect that all of the people who are involved in the protest should be ruthlessly rooted out and arrested and probably deported, right? I mean, no, she, she basically says no mercy for any of the people who are involved in this protest. And of course, then, you know, 24 hours later, she learns that, oh, 
my daughter was probably in the crowd at this protest. So it's this it's this conflict between her own words that were spoken in service of the ideology and as you've emphasized kind of the natural attachment to her daughter, her familial duties and those two things come into conflict in this stark way. Yeah, the whole story is about the contrast between love of ideology and, on the other hand, love of family. The public and the private are opposed in a radical way. It makes for great art. Konchalovsky directed, wrote, and produced the movie. This is what we call cinema. And, you know, he has a co-writer, Elena Kiseleva, who has been writing movies for a decade with him. And, of course, Lyudmila is played by his wife, Yulia Vysotskaya, who's been in his movies 20 years now. There's talent he can work with, but he has this comprehensive grasp. That, I think, accounts for how well he can present the sorts of things we would associate more with political theory, with the novel, or even with philosophy and theology. It makes the movie wonderful. As you said, one coincidence is the connection to Vasily Grossman, maybe the last great Russian novel. Grossman went through World War II, and he came out this novelist. Solzhenitsyn himself went through World War II and went from a communist to an enemy of communism. In Archipelago Lago, the massacre at Novocherkask is mentioned. It's the first, you could say, documentation of this real event, which was silenced for 30 years almost completely. It came out a bit in the press in France, England, and America in 62, but very little was made of it. And, of course, they also had this paradoxical situation that the readers of Time magazine in America knew more about it than the Russians did. Yeah. As you say, control of information, control of the narrative, which is, of course, an obsession we are going through now. Another way in which the movie is incredibly timely... <laughs> Konchalovsky looks at the matter as not only an opportunity, but a duty as an artist to tell the truth about these things. Both say what happened at the event, it's a real story, and also to make up a story, work as an artist to reveal why did this happen. And in this event that happened in a little industrial town, you see on the one hand this woman, and on the other hand the Russian system. As you said, these two people who were Khrushchev's most powerful allies, Kozlov, who was his right hand, and Anastas Mikoyan, who is the last of the old Bolsheviks. He was there before the revolution. He was in power and at the top throughout the days of Lenin and Stalin and the World War and afterwards, and again, Khrushchev's time. He was the soft guy. He was the rational economist, bureaucrat, as Minister of Foreign Trade. He was responsible for keeping the USSR economically alive, which was very difficult, of course. <laughs> and in this movie, he only shows up as a soft guy who can't trample people underfoot as Soviet tyranny requires. Konchalovsky uses this real event. Mikoyan was really there. Kozlov was really there. They really and truly ordered the KGB to murder people, to hide them in false graves, and to silence everybody down to deportation. And as I said, outside of Solzhenitsyn, there was nobody to tell the truth about it at the time. But then Konchalovsky can come and tell the truth and at the same time put the Soviet system on trial. It could never have worked. The most rationalistic, bureaucratic, economic guy, Mikoyan, who wasn't involved in cruelties, to be a Soviet is to be for brutality. You cannot have communism without a horrible violence. And our protagonist has to face this. She is a big believer in Stalin and socialism. And these are somewhat different things, and she deals with them in different ways. She hates Khrushchev because he's a weakling, unlike Stalin, who's a strong guy and saved Russia from Hitler. Again, a way in which she's just like people now, young and, and middle-aged people. You know, if you don't like somebody, call him Hitler, call him a Nazi, a fascist, and you can hate him and excuse any horror because, you know, like, what are you going to do, defend Hitler? Nobody can defend Hitler, so anything goes. She is that person. She reveals to people nowadays what's wrong with them. This is a kind of political, ideological fanaticism. But it also comes from a very human source. She was a teenager during World War II. She had to go fight as a nurse at the battlefront. That is the experience that created her. It spoke to her natural spiritedness. But at the same time, it gave her this love of strong men. She learned a child by a war hero who tragically and romantically died during the war. But he was married to another woman and had kids. Just like now, she is in an adulterous relationship. So again, it speaks to our times. We do not have some kind of Christian or bourgeois limit on morality. Adultery is considered to be okay. Abandoning your family does not lead to any punishment or humiliation in America. 
things have changed. So it's incredibly timely, but in a very disturbing way. <laughs> Personally, her child comes out of love of strong men as her lover, as Stalin. And on the other hand, out of her hope for the future, her hope that socialism will work. She is furious, we see in the opening scene, in a private setting with boss, who is an adulterous lover. Again, very timely issue. <laughs> you know, she's sleeping with her boss, but she turns out to be a much tougher woman than her boss. But she complains to him that socialism isn't working, that Khrushchev is a weakling, and that there's not enough economic success. Prices are going up, and people are going hungry, and it's making for protests. Only in this private secret situation that is also criminal in the sense that adultery is against the law, she can tell the truth. This is the real thing we're dealing with. Everywhere else she has to tell the ideological lie. Even just to spare people, tell them, tell the ideological lie, just repeat it, believe it, never think otherwise because you put yourself in danger. In a crazy way, it seems like an act of mercy to repeat these lies, however corrupting they are. It's a very complex and unpleasant situation in this way, but she is aware of this truth that socialism isn't the future. And this crisis in the movie tells her that it can't be the future. As you say, her daughter is now in danger. Her daughter was born of the war, the Hitler danger, when it was a real Nazi, not a play-acted fantasy Nazi, threatening her life and her country. Now her daughter is threatened by the Communist Party she serves as a Communist Party official, by the communism she believes in with ferocity. And in these three days, she comes to this crisis that she should hold on to her daughter, not the party. She cannot let her die. And so she discovers all this strength she had in her as a girl herself to save her girl, who is now at the age she was during the war. Her girl is not a special person. She doesn't have any particular strength. It's not impressive like the mother is, but she's doing exactly what the mother did out of belief in socialism, protesting and fighting for the sake of a good future. Yeah. And she herself has to see that communism today is what Hitler was in the 40s. Yeah, she couple things connected to the points you're making about her character. One, I mean, we've talked about her being an ideologue and, and a kind of fanatic, a believer in communism. But as you say, her fanaticism is of an irregular kind. Since we're now in the Khrushchev era, Khrushchev has made his so-called secret speech against Stalin, which is not so secret anymore. And they've made public Stalin's excesses and the mistakes around this so-called cult of personality. But she's pretty open with some people about her preference for Stalin over Khrushchev. And so even her fanaticism has a heterodox tinge to it. She has a picture of Stalin in her home and the KGB guy, when he comes to search the place where the daughter kind of looks at it and I think is struck, well, that's not a normal thing to, to have on your wall, right? And so, yeah, there's the, I just wanted to emphasize her. She is a fanatic, but there's a heterodoxy to it. She also has a sense of responsibility that is a bit atypical for, you know, people involved with the party and its apparatus, right? The movie really brings out kind of the faceless, moronic, pathetic bureaucrats that peopled the party and its institutions in terms of the response to this revolt. I mean, there's just a kind of devastating portrait of the type of people that were able to rise in the system. I mean, Solzhenitsyn talks a lot about how and why communism elevated the absolutely worst types of human beings. And so you see that. But the contrast with her is really interesting. At one point, they are driving, I think it's away from the city to the power plant initially, and she's with her fellow city officials. And she wants to take responsibility for the failures of the party to sensitize the workers to the rising prices. She thinks that's a real failure of the party's, I don't know, ideological mission. And she says, they're going to send me, you know, to the east to be a nurse in some nowhere city and kind of implies that she deserves it. And so that's striking because everyone else, of course, is blaming the person above them or under them, you know, saying, well, it's not my fault. It's the excesses or the mistakes of this or that person. And so her fanaticism, which in a way is contemptible, is combined on the one hand with the slightly heterodox, in some ways disgusting attachment to Stalin, but also a sense of responsibility, which is totally absent, I think, from nearly everyone else around her. Yeah, you're right. One thing that struck me about her character is that if it were a man, not a woman, and, you know, in America, not Russia, our liberal friends would say that she is a fascist personality. She wants to impose rules on people and punish them and do harsh things. But as you point out, there are two things wrong with that. First of all, she's a communist, not a fascist. A lot of her, as you say, is not evil, even though people might call her fascist. She does take responsibility for other people. She does try to help as much as she can. 
And at the same time, there is a certain nobility to her harshness. She doesn't ever say bad things to people for no reason. That's what makes for the complexity of the story and for her possibility of redemption from the moral point of view. But of course, from the political point of view, she becomes a traitor to Soviet Russia and her darling Stalinist socialism because she can no longer believe in it. It has been corrupted and failed with Khrushchev. And on the other hand, because it has become a personal threat to her daughter. And so there is a wonderful transformation here that allows us to see what were these people like? How could people have raised their children as they did? Mm -hmm. She was defined by World War II, this terror beyond all terrors that meant that anything is excusable because you have to beat Hitler. However many people Stalin kills, it's fine because Hitler did worse or would have done worse had he not been beaten. That excuses anything. But that attitude no longer works even for Lyudmila. She cannot believe that all this misery now is what socialism was supposed to be, and yet she has to deal with it every day. And she cannot believe that it's going to get better because in reality you get Khrushchev, in reality you get this misery, and there's nothing you can say about it or against it. Her only public complaint is, as I said, in a private bedroom scene. Whereas her daughter is willing to complain publicly in a workers' protest. And uh, nevertheless, the workers' protests are illegal. Whereas these sorts of private chats between apparatchiks are sort of tolerated. Today, in, in many, many places, people are complaining about the excesses of ideology, about mobs or the destruction of people's careers or lives, but also in quiet bedroom scenes because they don't speak publicly. The difference, of course, is that this woman has a terrible courage, which leads her to risk everything and to transform, in a way, into who she was. Into the kind of woman who was not just in love with a war hero and had a child that she loves so much, but also a patriot. When KGB men start firing on the young workers, killing dozens of people, she saves a girl who has already been shot takes her into a room and tries to take care of her, only for a minute later for the girl to be executed by one of these communist thugs. And there she sees somebody just like her daughter, somebody for whom she would risk everything, and there is nothing you can do. You're faced with tyranny here, and it's full terror. That This is the paradox that, as you said, in the meeting with the communist bigwigs, where the party itself decides murder and lies are the truth, she is the most ferocious person there. That's the only way she has to deal with the fact that her socialism isn't working. Right. It's, yeah. it's a horrible moment. Yeah, it shows a real corruption, yeah. But then she turns to this other side where she will abandon all this ideology for the sake of her daughter. Well, and it's interesting, too, because a day later, so after she makes the speech, you know, she doesn't really think too much about it. I mean, I think she's she's a little shocked that she did it. And, you know, her lover, Loganoff, says, I can't believe you stood up and said that. And she says something like, well, why didn't you stop me? But after that, she doesn't think much about it. But then we learn Koslov has subsequently identified her as someone who should speak this new, very harsh, militant party line at another public meeting. And this is after she's realized that her daughter might be involved in this. And she can't do it again. She can't make that same speech. And so, you, you know, you see this break in her own relationship to the party. And she goes to the bathroom and she prays. There's no hint before that that she has any connection to faith or genuine orthodoxy or anything. But nonetheless, she prays and crosses herself that uh, her daughter is still alive. But it's interesting that it's almost as if she doesn't, she no longer can even fathom that she would have been the kind of person to make that militant speech. It's almost like discovering a side of herself that she didn't know existed and she's sort of looking with horror on the type of person that would make that fanatical speech. So even though it's very, I mean, I'm making it out to be more obvious than it is, but I think it's handled by Konchalovsk in a kind of very subtle way. But nonetheless, I think there is a real break I think that the movie does a good job of showing you how people managed to confront the ideological pseudo-reality that surrounded them and pay obeisance to it when they needed to, but try to negotiate it in private, right, and kind of bow to necessity and reality in different places and different ways wherever they could. I think she just decides that that's not going to, negotiating in that way is, is not going to help her deal with the harsh reality of her daughter. So then she just goes on this kind of mad search for either proof that her daughter has been murdered or proof that she's alive. And at that point, she needs the help of this KGB man, Victor, 
We don't know anything about him or his background. We know that he's previously been identifying people in the crowd of the protest whom he thinks are the instigators. So he seems to be someone who the KGB understands as a reliable you know, person to really detect who troublemakers could be. So he seems good at his job. But he sees something in her that he thinks is admirable, and he helps her on her quest to find her daughter. And so he's another interesting character because it's another evidence for the fact that, again, people negotiate no matter how orthodox and attached to the communist world they seem to be, they negotiate their unbelief and their heterodoxy in different ways. And sometimes I think surprising ways, even from the standpoint of their own, you know, I, I think he would have been kind of surprised after the fact that he chose to endanger himself by helping this woman, but he does it in a kind of spontaneous way. He sort of sees her suffering and, and just helps her. Yeah, you're right. There's something plausible and at the same time artistic. It's something that you have to think about and watch the movie again and again. But you also are moved by it the first time you go through the story. It's a wonderful combination of recognizing obvious things that these communist types are also corrupt in a certain way. They take private advantages for themselves. As we see Ludmila, she gets the advantages of a party apparat. She, she has household goods that other people don't get the chance to buy. She gets to cut in front of the line or go to the back pantry at the local shop and get stuff. Some sort of Hungarian booze, right? <laughs> exactly. She can't find vodka, so she gets unicum, the Hungarian herbal spirit. Not what her Russian father would like. He's a patriotic vodka drinker, but, you know, what are you going to do? They end up getting drunk on it because it's all they've got. So she has all these private advantages. That is a corruption of socialism, but in another way, it's just getting what socialism promised you anyway. It's just that you're the only person to get it. It's both an affirmation and contradiction of equality of socialism's promises. It's the weird world people had to live in under communism. But the wonder of the movie is that it suggests these real facts about communism, the corruption of the party operatives. In this case, the real corruption is that love, morality, even God, come through. It is precisely this woman who, as you say, in a moment of shock at what she has become, she can't recognize herself. She can't turn herself to her past any more than she can to Russia's future, which she can't believe in anymore. She suddenly turns to God, and there is this very funny and, in a way, very touching scene. As you said, she hides in a toilet because it's the only private place for a woman. That something about your body, shame about excretions, is the last private space in communist Russia where everything else has been made public. And why does she hide there to pray to God? It's not the ugly, shameful necessities of the body. It's the necessity of the soul that is just as ugly or shameful in communism. Mm, that's good, yeah. Wonderful scene. And at the same time, it, your jaw drops. Like, who the hell prays to God in a toilet? Well, people will pray to God when they need to. <laughs> If you're desperate, if you realize your limits and then the terrible situation you're in, I don't think you will worry about proprieties anymore. And so as her faith in communism breaks down, faith can come back in other ways. These things that she had lied to herself about, as it were, for so long, suddenly break out. Wonderful characterization, especially because it points to this thing that, as you said so well, she can't recognize the person she was the day before. In that party meeting, when she asks in a hysterical way for cruelty, for remorseless punishment, she tries to publicize her own misery, her own fear that socialism isn't working out. And she does something so horrible by speaking out that she then can't even recognize it. She acts as though she didn't remember she did this. Right. As you said, the brutal Kozlov wants her to be the leader for this brutality because you always need to get somebody else's hands dirty too. You need to bloody everybody's hands as much as possible to keep the guilt going. Yeah, it's important too that she has to write it down. There even seems to be something more uncomfortable about being forced to write it even than speak it. So her weaker party lover, Loginov, is the one who dictates the actual words to her as she writes it down, but she ends up not being able to give the speech that's an interesting scene, too. I mean, connected to the point about her faith, maybe one the other character we haven't talked about yet is her father. She lives with her father. Her father is probably in his 70s at this point, I would guess. At one point, he opens a trunk that he has in their flat, and he has his military uniform from Tsarist times. Maybe he fought in the First World War. He has an icon of a holy woman from Kazan, some letters, a few other trinkets. So we, we see him and his you know connection to the pre-Bolshevik world, and so he seems not surprised 
surprised, let's say, that communism is going through the troubles it's going through in the 60s, but he kind of says, well, I'm going to die soon anyway. Why should I make trouble? But at a certain point in the movie, he sees what she's going through, her kind of crisis of conscience. And I think he thinks he decides, I think he must decide that he wants to kind of help that crisis come to full fruition. And so he reads letters from his niece, so cousins of hers, probably older by 10 years or so, that were written around 1922 and 23. And in these letters are descriptions of utterly horrific and brutal acts undertaken by the Bolsheviks against Mensheviks or anyone who was dissenting tried to resist the coming of Bolshevism. And so he describes the Bolsheviks cutting out someone's tongue and nailing the tongue to their chin and letting the person walk around the village. And the message for him is this is what communism is, Liuda. It's about time that you face this fact. And she doesn't seem nonplussed. She doesn't seem particularly affected by it at the time, but I think it has the intended effects in terms of how she behaves later on in the movie. Yeah, that's a very good point. Whenever she's confronted with this, she becomes very defensive. She says, well, what did you want them to do? How was communism going to win? They had right. to kill all the people. Necessity excuses anything. You don't have to behave like a human being. You have to behave like a beast. You can worship Stalin like a god because he was a beast. He murdered everybody who got in the way. And you know what? That's what it takes to beat Hitler. That's what she believes, and that's what, of course, ideologues and fanatics believe. The more beautiful the ideology, the more brutal the fanaticism gets. And in her, you see this stuff that you must see in, you know, why do young people start burning cities down? The more beautiful their ideology of equality, the more bestial they become. But she becomes very defensive when her own father notices this. There are these wonderful scenes. He's realized two things. One of them, something is happening in Novocherkas. This is an old man, not bedridden, but he's limited to his apartment. He can never go out. He's a prisoner there. In a way, like every Russian is now a prisoner, but it's much more obvious in his case. All he can do is shout from the balcony that his daughter should get him cigarettes, and he drinks too. That's all that's left to him. He has been emasculated. And that's why he puts on his uniform. He realizes communism isn't working anymore. There's something afoot. He wants to be part of it in some sense. Like Lyudmila's daughter is protesting, so is her father. But in a private, in relation to their family memory, he's telling her, these were your relatives, this is your blood. So indeed, he notices that she's changing. It is now possible to show her, to tell her these things that have been secret. The private can reassert its claims. Family and memory can reassert their claims against ideology. And in order to do that, he has to be a man. And the only thing he can do is to put back his uniform. And in wearing that uniform, not just to relive his past, but to act like a man. Then the KGB guy sees him. There are people who see him from the party because she is now herself suspect. The party is turning against her. And uh, she has to make excuses for her father, but he doesn't make any excuses because he's miserable, he's cynical, he's lived his life, and he can never forget what the communists did to his family and to the Russian people. So, you know, die, so what? He's past caring. And that, of course, becomes an example in a way to her. This is what Lyudmila in her own case does. She will risk everything for her daughter. The official ideological writing that her cowardly boss dictates to her is replaced by the letters her mm. father reads to her. And indeed, the power of writing, the power of memory over fantasies, like these lies that the ideology makes up, is asserted in this private space. And throughout the movie, the private space grows larger in a revolt that is doomed. But it's not doomed forever. Konchalovsky survived communism. We can expect that Lyudmila's daughter survived communism. And eventually, the truth came out about the horrors. And so, in a way, it makes sense that there's this irony that this is the brutality of Khrushchev that is on display. And Khrushchev is the man who revealed the ugly brutality of Stalin, as you so well said, the de-Stalinization process, the excesses of Stalin. It turns out that Khrushchev is no different. His own brutality has to be revealed to understand that communism always is this and cannot be anything else. Because it is an attempt to publicize everything private, to turn everybody's life into an ideological act. So this old man rebels against it, and he tells this ugly truth. And indeed, as you said, this uh, horrifying but very telling moment, somebody's tongue is cut out and nailed on his chin. If you speak out, this is what you get. But in some way, the truth must be told. It must out. And Lyudmila's action outs the truth, and Konchalovsky's movie can tell the truth now that tyranny can no longer win. So that, you know, even Khrushchev, even communism, thank God, is merely mortal. It must disappear, and therefore the truth must be told, and therefore memory must be preserved. 
And this, in a sense, is what the movie is about. The old man did his job in that fundamental sense. Keep memory alive. And now he must pass it on to his daughter. Yeah, maybe I'd like to, to get your take, too, on the last third of the movie where we see the KGB man rush into action to try to help Ludmilla find her daughter. She initially goes to the morgue to make sure she's not among the dead there. And then she learns from the KGB official that there are more people who were murdered in the course of the suppression of the protest than were at the morgue. And those people have been moved to a neighboring village and probably disposed of in some mass grave somewhere. He is not sure. And and so he decides he's going to take her to this village and to see if he can find this grave. And it's interesting, right? They try to leave the city. And of course, the city is on lockdown. No one is allowed to leave the city. He shows his KGB identification in the hopes that that will kind of get him a pass. And the military checkpoint supervisor kind of laughs and says, doesn't the KGB know that the city's on lockdown? Then I I can't, I'm in no position to let you go. So they go into an office where they're interrogated and he and Luda talk about how they might gate admission out of the city. And Ludmilla says, well, why don't we think up some sort of ideological lie? Maybe anti-Soviet activities have arisen in neighboring villages. And he says, that's not going to work. Our only hope is to tell them the truth that we're searching for your daughter and hope the guy that we're meeting is decent. And I thought that was interesting that even in this hyper ideological world, sometimes the best way to navigate it and gain sympathy is through honesty and just hope that the person with whom you are dealing has some shred of decency and isn't completely ideologized or I don't know what the right word is. But you know what I mean? I thought that was an interesting touch by Konchalovsky that that was really their last hope to find the body is that they would get lucky and find some decent person that would let them out. Yeah, that's a very good point. They gotta take a risk. It's partly what makes for the thrill of the movie, but it also has a deep meaning that more and more you identify behind the ideological facade, private life, private interests, ways to get something that you want, because people respect the private as the natural. They feel it is tyrannized. It's always got to be hidden, but it's there. They understand the mother searching for a child, the desperation it takes to break these orders when you're KGB, when your communist party is he and she are, so that it's risky for them. But in a way, they also exercise their unequal, their special privileges. And at the same time, what you're saying about her, well, she says, let's concoct an ideological lie. Let's keep up the political theater. That's how you do it. This is what her boss believes, the coward Loginov. This KGB guy that replaces Loginov, he's a tougher man. He's willing to take risks. It's also suggested by the fact that Ludmila and him get drunk together. Getting drunk in this movie means being able to face a very mm-hmm. ugly truth. And maybe being willing to say something unguarded. Exactly. And it's again like the tongue that is cut off and nailed on your chin. You're risking your life with your mouth here. But they, they have to do it. And this KGB guy is, of course, that man she must have fallen in love with during the war, the father of her child. Like him, he is a manly man, not like the coward Loginov, not like the coward Khrushchev for that matter. What she loves in Stalin, which is crazy, is true in the case of this man who is willing to risk his life for the sake of her and her daughter. And at this point, you say this is a fairy tale. But in another sense, they can't all have been evil all the time right. in the USSR. Yeah, yeah. And, and even this, his KGB, he has to lie to the army and he uses the fact that they hated each other. The KGB and the army hated each other because the army had a certain professionalism and the notion of honor in some sense. And the KGB was, of course, the political police and had none of the military discipline or the risks. Right. So that, again, plays up a ideologically incorrect truth. So the army will be suspicious of the KGB and will think of them as, you know, maybe doing something underhanded. But it also has to have this added element, as you said. They get that this woman is looking for her child. What are you going to do? They just let him pass. And so you have to take your chances. You have to trust to some extent to luck, but also to human decency. In some secret illegal way, there's some humanity left somewhere. Yeah. And so they get to escape confines of the city that is now under martial lockdown and is about to face show trials. And, you know, this is Soviet Russia. There's blood on the streets because of putting down the revolt in blood. It's so hot in the June heat in the Ukraine, the blood is burned into the asphalt. It's You can't wash it. So they just get orders from the party, pour new asphalt. You don't have to wash it. Just build over it. Nobody will be able to tell the truth. You have the power to lie about all of this stuff. You can make a new world. 
Well, then they, yeah, they erect the stage where the band will play and the people will dance on the third day. The other detail that we haven't mentioned yet that just illustrates the level to which, you know, people would realize they had to embrace this pseudo reality is this is during the second day. So basically during or shortly after the violence has been unleashed, Liuta first goes to the morgue and then she's trying to see if maybe her daughter's at the hospital and she runs into an older nurse and Liuta says to her, you know, I'm looking for my daughter. Where are the injured people? And the poor nurse, the older nurse just looks stunned and knows exactly what she's supposed to say. She says, we're under quarantine. There are no injured people here. Right. And it's minutes after the injured people have arrived. I mean, for all we know, maybe they're still arriving. You know, so it's I mean, what Orwell would call doublespeak literally right and right in front of you. That's another striking portrayal of this. But but your your point about this nod to the reality of human nature and, and well, maybe if this KGB guy is portrayed as being kind of sympathetic to Ludmilla, isn't that unrealistic or isn't that kind of a fairy tale because we all know that the people in the KGB were evil. I mean, yes and no, that sort of reminds me of the objection to the lives of others and Donner's Mark's portrayal of Wiesler, right? I think it's more of a fairy tale to say, you know, that the people who inhabited these roles were just simply evil and never nodded to the reality of human nature. Yes, they might have participated in evil things most of their lives day in and day out. But the idea that they could never even temporarily retreat from that, I think, is to mistake the performative aspects of their job in their lives for the real. Yes, that's a very good point, and it's a very apt comparison, right? In a strange way, decent moral Democrats end up asserting that the system in communism was all-powerful. And I think ultimately that means, you know, it's not like we could have ever done or anybody could have ever done anything. The system was just perfect. Whereas what these films suggest with a strange artistic courage is that communists were people to evil people, but they still had the human weaknesses. They still had human desires. You can't politicize everything all the time. You have to admit, even evil people have weaknesses, okay? And that's the genius of this movie and of the lives of others, which is the best of the type. Best movie of the 21st century, I guess. Because there you see that art is able to somehow bring out this weakness even within the system. Communists too are mortal. A system of oppression is still to an extent fallible. And to give persuasion to this thing that we must know is fundamentally true. Communism collapsed. How powerful? It can't have been all powerful. It was not God, okay? But at the same time, it's very hard to believe that there were weaknesses, that there were these moments where you could be corrupted by God or by family or by human nature. Yeah. Which is what these movies show you, that humanity is a corruption against communism. Well, it t- and it takes an artist to imagine what these people might have revealed in their unguarded moments, because, I mean, I suppose unless you, you find a diary, and I'm sure those exist in, in archives somewhere that there might be. Well, I guess the example would be, I'm blanking on her name, the author's name, but she's become pretty famous now. But the, she wrote a book interviewing survivors of Chernobyl, which was partially relied on for the producers and directors of the HBO series Chernobyl. So people are certainly capable of finding people and talking to them about their memories of the past. But sometimes those memories are, you know, invented or romanticizations. I mean, people aren't always very reliable about what their own past entailed. So I do think it's important for artists to help restore memory in terms of imagining what people might legitimately have said and the ways they might have acted in these unguarded moments. And, you know, they can't be these automaton communist, you know, leaders everywhere and always. And so I do think there's a special place for the artist to imagine these sorts of private realities that, you know, might be lost. Yeah, that's a very good point. These artists have to believe that their insight into human nature is real and then try to figure it out. Okay, if I'm not crazy, nobody agrees with me, but let's say I'm not crazy. How would this work out? And then when you come up with that story, you subject it to the judgment of the people. Do you believe that this is plausible? And this is not just the artist's revolt against tyranny like Konchalovsky, who had to live most of his life under Soviet tyranny. Trying not just to revenge himself on it, but to rescue human nature from politicization, to rescue people from ideology. Now, I've already compared again and again communism to our woke ideology, not because they are the same. Woke people are hysterical losers. They do not have the power of Stalin or Mikoyan or any of these people. They are not Khrushchev. They're nothing. 
But it's very important to realize something else that these movies would not make sense even to the, of course, very educated, moralistic, atheist, materialists who give awards at festivals, right? <laughs> these are not awards given by fanatical conservative Christians. They're all given by atheistic materialists. You know, it's weird that Tarkovsky, the mentor of Konchalovsky, is acknowledged a master by all people who love movies. And yet he was, if anything, a Christian fanatic, and they are all anti-Christian. <laughs> That shows, in a way, that they misunderstand him, but in another way, the power of art. So also here, I believe we would not care about this woman or this story if we didn't also feel the weakness that is shown in those movies. If we looked at ourselves as confident liberal Democrats who have got it figured out, nobody would give a damn about these movies. Because we would not be able to say the misery here, the ideology, the threat to human nature. I feel it too. Yeah, These are not movies made for the sake of characters that are made up and that lived 50 years ago. These are movies made for the sake of us because these are our weaknesses. These are artists who are trying to save us from ideology. Yeah, I think that's very good. Just to move us to the last part of the movie, so they presumably find a decent border guard who lets them through, and then they find the party official in the neighboring village who it turns out was responsible for burying these surplus bodies that were transferred there after the massacre. And he takes them to the gravesite, and he is shown a picture of Svetka, Lyuda's daughter, and he says, oh yes, I buried her, I remember, I think she mentions the pigtails, and I can't remember if there's another identifying mark, but she shows him a picture, and he says, yes, I buried her. Why do we think he says that? I mean, does he not remember and just thinks he's better off agreeing to this request because these people are um, presumably powerful enough to find their way to me and then find their way to this grave? But I thought it was curious that he says that he buried her when we find out very quickly that he didn't. Yeah, that guy is a very funny, in a terrible way, very Russian guy. Think about 19th century Christmas stories. There's Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. Terrible things happen there, but they're just suggested. And they turn out you can do away with the bad things and have the spirit of Christmas. God bless us, everyone, right? Now, if you read the Russian masters and their Christmas stories, it's children die, officials make your life miserable, and it's just awful. This is the way you get it in Turgenev, yeah. Gogol, what have you. Like, this is Russia. And so also with this old man, this KGB guy and this Communist Party lady come to you asking questions. Like, he admits this horrible truth. He says to them, like, you're going to kill me, aren't you? Yeah. Oh, my God, you're going to kill me. You see this terrible resignation in him. And nevertheless, he tells the truth. He doesn't try to save himself. It's in a way awful to think that this guy is beaten. He has no privacy inside of himself to hide. You know, come up with a lie. Save yourself, dude. The KGB has used him to dig into people's unmarked graves and throw more bodies in there. He couldn't say no, but he can't lie either. That weakness and that truth-telling go together. It's terrible, but in another way, he's a funny, pathetic creature. And in a yet other way, he's willing to tell the truth. They show him this odd thing that you learn about in the beginning of the movie. Uh, Ludmila's daughter, Svetlana, she does not care to darn her socks because she's a young girl of 18, beautiful and lively, and she's not going to darn her socks. And so her toes show, and he saw that. Everybody kicks him around, the KGB, now these people, he wants to be guilty. He says, yeah, I saw the undarned socks, yeah. As though in communist Russia, there might not be a lot of people with right. bad socks, you know? <laughs> so you think he just makes a mistake, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, think he's like he's been beaten into misery. He expects the bad thing to be true. Yeah. It is just part of life. You are used to do something unholy, to desecrate graves and to hide people's dead. Throughout the movie, more and more private life bursts out. As Ludmila falls apart, she can now learn about the secret private life of her family in the past. She can learn about God. She can learn about her daughter being a protester. She can learn all sorts of things that were never there obvious before. This guy from the KGB kind of loves her. But it turns out to all be oriented to this question of the holy. Tyranny can destroy people, but you cannot take away the dead from people. You cannot politicize life to the extent that they no longer believe this was my daughter. Right. You have to have some property over the dead or you're not a human being anymore. You're just an animal. Yeah, she can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this ties us, of course, to reality. In 1992, they went and dug up the corpses and buried them in a real memorial. The truth outed, the desecration was repaired in a way. The holy restored its claims even after communism. 
as crazy as that old man is the truth about the KGB. They murdered and, and they hid these corpses, but they kept absolutely clear tabs <laughs> about where this happened so that 30 years later they could right. dig up the people again. I mean, yeah, yeah. what the hell well, does it's, this? It's crazy too. Well, not crazy, but she, I was struck by the, I mean, it's a very moving scene when she starts to try to dig up the grave with her hands and the KGB man, you know, moves her along and they get in the car and she has another breakdown when they're in the car. You know, she's reacting to the idea that these people were transported outside of town and buried in unmarked graves. Like you say, she can't abide this violation of the sacred. That's the thing that seems to have really broken her at the end. You know, why, why would they do that? Why would they bury people in unmarked graves? And it's very moving. On the other hand, you know, knowing something about communism, or even if you don't know anything about communism, if you paid attention to the father's reading of the letter and his recounting of, you know, what happened in 1923, and, you know, if you even if you know a little bit about what happened in the Soviet Union in the 30s or 40s, your reaction is, really, you're that naive? You think that burying people in unmarked grave is the thing that that's the line where they would have stopped? And so you're kind of struck by her defense of the sacred, but I think you're also just kind of astonished at her, um, I don't know, willingness to believe that they would have drawn the line there. Yeah, I think that's a very important point, that this woman could never square. She saw World War II firsthand, she was a battlefront nurse, but she never could accept this. This is much more important than seems to us. Somehow, the people who most deal in death, most care about burial. Nothing is as private as death. And this woman, when she realizes that it's real because it's happening to her daughter, to her future, to her flesh and bone, she no longer denies something that you're perfectly right. Communists did this to everybody, but we didn't have to live through it. Yeah. There's an interesting detail that we talked about in my um, class on life and faith the other night. One of the characters actually also named Ludmilla. She's talking with a friend about the fact that her brother Dimitri is in a camp. And I think it's the friend that brings up Dimitri and Ludmilla says, you know, something like, well, you know, we all know that there aren't really innocent people in the camps. So here she's denying the claims of the private, right? I mean, very cruelly denying the claims of her own brother. And that, you know, I think Grossman's trying to illustrate in some sense the power of ideology. And even if that sentence is only performative, right, she's only saying that publicly to her friends to put herself above suspicion. It's kind of an astonishing, ugly thing to say. I mean, my students were struck by the fact that she would deny her own brother the plausibility of being innocent. But I was thinking about the graves, it would be a different thing, I think, if the Ludmilla of the novel had to confront the grave and confront the kind of thing that the Ludmilla of Dear Comrades had to confront. It's sort of easy to suppress the private in certain instances with things at a distance. But when you're faced with someone's death and the kind of the stark reality of their grave, then it's much more difficult, perhaps. Yeah, Lyudmila is finally reconciled to her daughter. But two things must happen first. One of them, she has to confront this horror. Your daughter is dead. Your beloved Communist Party killed her. Until she can believe that, she cannot really see what change is happening inside of her. After that, there's no going back. As a mother, she can't let go of the hope. Eventually, she does find her daughter because she has not become hopeless. But she has to have learned that because you have this hope, this love of your daughter, you can see the full evil of this regime. But there's another thing. She learns that her daughter is afraid of her. There was this one moment she went to her daughter's friend. Is my Svetka with you? No, never seen her. Yeah. That's another incredible shock. Before the daughter and mother can be reconciled, the mother learns that her daughter feared she would turn her in. As you said, there are all these people who have been shot, murdered. They have to be hidden. If they're alive, they have to be deported or arrested. So there's no evidence. You have to make people disappear. And Ludmila has to face this, but it never occurs to her that her own daughter might be afraid of her. Right. That her own daughter might identify her with this evil. As you say, Ludmila is always called Luda, and Svetlana, the daughter, is always called Zvetka. Those uh, Russian abbreviations, they show you this intimacy, this love. You always see this in Russian novels. When people avoid the family name, they call you by your first name or right. first name and patronymic. It's more private, family-based. I know who you really are. We know each other. And yet, mother and daughter grow so far apart. And of course, in between, we see, and uh, Ludmila has to see, how Soviet control of the information works. They force everybody to sign that nothing happened, they weren't part of anything, nothing is real. 
And one girl who is as young and as stupid as Ludmila's daughter, innocent, says, but I was a protester. And the young man her age, who is KGB, arrests her and she might never be heard from again. Yeah. She's too stupid to be afraid. Right. And of course, in a way, we are much wiser because we watch this movie with fear. But in a way, we're just like this girl. We have no idea what the hell happens when this sort of ideological correctness takes force. Right. Indeed, you see this all the time. People are shocked that something from their Twitter past comes and cancels them. Those people may have been stupid, but they were also innocent. They never thought their social media posts could lead to a cancellation. There's nothing like being murdered or arrested. But nobody saw it coming. I thought freedom of speech or, or civil friendship would, would preserve me. You have no idea what you're dealing with. Right. We really don't. You see that girl and Ludmila sees her and it turns out, how could you be so innocent in the face of evil? Right. They're young socialists. They don't think they're going to be murdered by their own government. You'd be surprised how few well, people think that. Svetka is not as naive as that young nurse, precisely because she knows her mother, ironically. Right? She's grown up with this woman. So she's like, I know I know what the party I know what the party Exactly. Is. She has seen fanaticism. I've, I've come home late from a date. <laughs> you should you should see what I've had to deal with at home, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, but nonetheless, there's, you know, the final scene on the roof when Lyuda discovers Svetka's now hiding on the roof. You know, they embrace. And I was curious what you thought about the last few lines where um, Lyuda says something like, we will become better. It seems to me to be a, an echo of a probably a kind of line from what I assume would have been the Young Pioneers or some party propaganda organization, right? We will move forward together and, and become better socialists. But I suspect me, I mean, I don't know Russian and, and I don't know what the Russian tagline would have been for something like the Young Pioneers. This is just a suspicion, but I suspect it's a kind of modification of one of those ideological phrases. And it's enough of a modification to suggest that she doesn't mean it in the ideological way. She actually means something like, we'll change a little bit. We'll have to adapt ourselves and, you know, become different. That's a fascinating insight. That's just a guess. I have no idea if that's true, but it, just the way that she said it and the way it sounds struck me that it might have some particular resonance to one of those organizations. I don't know. Your expertise on totalitarianism is enough for me to take your guesses very seriously. And it's an interesting suggestion because indeed, you know, Ludmila for the first time can speak to her daughter as herself. This stuff is now really coming out of her mouth. It's not the party trying to speak to her. It's not the boss trying to speak through her. She's finally herself. Yeah. It's a movie that starts with adultery and ends with high treason. And that's the happy end. The Soviet Union is in a way the opposite of our situation. If you want to help your daughter and save her, even if your daughter maybe did something criminal, this is not, you know, grounds for execution in America. You might even be excused in a way because you love your daughter. Adultery, however, we kind of frown upon. It's not such a big deal. Nobody takes it legally seriously, but still. Right. So the, the natural order has been fully reversed through politicization. And here, the one time and the end of the movie, Ludmila can talk to her daughter as mother to daughter, reassure the child that there's hope for the better, to speak things that have been for so long politicized with real feeling in this secret, private way. As you say, they're on top of the building. They're on the roof. You cannot be in the house. The house is under surveillance. You hide on top of the house, on the roof, because it's the only place. Yeah. The ordinary use of houses itself is being reversed. <laughs> right. The really private stuff can only be spoken, yeah, on the roof. Yeah, it's a really powerful movie. I watched it twice and noticed more things a second time around, but I don't think it's a movie that needs to be, you know, studied in any kind of rigorous way to be understood or admired. I think Konchalovsky is enough of an artist, you know, to draw you in right away on first viewing and make you see what he's getting at and why these characters are interesting and appealing, even even despite the fact that, you know, they're ugly in a lot of ways. And I think our first reaction to Liuta is, ugh, what a horrible party hack she is, you know? Yeah, that's right. First time around, some of the stuff you see is just, you can't believe, oh my God, why is this happening? But it's true, it also draws you in because you can tell bad things are going to happen long before the characters can tell. But on the other hand, you don't know how it's going to turn out. Right. It's a wonderful piece of artistry that reminds you that this was a real event. But when you go through it, you can't tell how it turns out. And because it was so long lied about, we don't know how it turned out. 
Mm-hmm. When, you, when you can't fully believe in ideology anymore, you have a weakness. You can be corrupted by intimations of the truth about who we are as human beings. It's the subversive power of the truth. The great theme of dissident literature is very well enacted. You go through this, the truth is the subject of a thriller. Human nature comes out in this shocking yeah. way against tyranny. It's a much different movie, it strikes me, than the movie we just spoke about previously after Image. You know, after image is the same subject matter, but it is a kind of grinding portrait and it's a kind of direct portrait of a descent. You're downhill and in after image the whole way and still interesting and admirable and handled with real subtlety and care but you have no doubt the direction that you're being moved to and in this movie there there's so many kind of unexpected twists and turns and surprises from different characters that yeah even though it's a historical event there's a sense of the unexpected and we're, we're not quite sure how people are gonna react to the situations that they're put in and so in that sense yeah it's quite different from after image and not necessarily one is better than the other, but yeah, it's a much different feel to sit with this movie for two hours than with Vida's movie. Yeah, you're right. A lot of it, I think, is the difference that After Image is about a man and this is about a woman. But it is true that Dear Comrades is just more hopeful. There's more capacity for surprise and squeaking out the victory. And I think that's a very good place to close. We leave our audience, not just with Konchalovsky, but as you said, Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate, it's now an Amazon series. And not two years back, Chernobyl, soon to be on its 35th anniversary, the horror, not the show, it's now an HBO show. So this will be our next podcast as we deal with communism. And the great art tries to both tell the truth and rescue humanity. Yeah, it sounds good. I hope we're able to get to that soon. I admired the show when I first saw it a few years ago and wrote up a short review for Law and Liberty. Yeah, I look forward to talking about it with you. Likewise, I owe all of these things to you. You keep bringing these things up and we go through wonderful stories. And in certain ways, it's winning and compelling because you see human heroism. And in this case, because they are true stories, it seems more serious and more believable. And so I hope our audiences too will be won over. And we will go see Konchalovsky and Grossman and so forth as our series progresses. Meanwhile, all the best, Flag. Thanks for everything. Thanks, Titus. It was great. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.